1: Get tickets to experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. Tonight, only on Disney. My name is Taylor.
0: Welcome to the Eras
1: Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record breaking Eras Tour. Does
2: anyone here know the
1: lyrics? Ruben! Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour. Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber. To improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin. Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind
0: for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com.
2: Hi, this is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host, Frank Padre. Our guest this week is a journalist, occasional columnist, a former magazine editor, film historian, and best-selling author. His debut book, 2008's Pictures at a Revolution, Five movies and the birth of New Hollywood detailed the fall of the studio system, the dawn of the new golden age of movies, and the introduction of the motion picture rating system, and was called a first-rate and deliciously readable cultural history by the Los Angeles Times. In 2014, he published his second book, Five Came Back, a story of Hollywood and the Second World War, which explored the wartime experiences of filmmakers Frank Capra, John Huston, William Wyler, George Stevens, and John Ford. He also wrote the script For the acclaimed and essential 2017 Netflix Netflix docuseries based on his book featuring Steven Spielberg, Francis Ford Coppola, and Meryl Streep, among others. His newest project, published just this year, is Mike Nichols' A Life a magnificent 594-page biography about one of the most creative and versatile artists of the, in the history of popular entertainment, which the Washington Post called shrewd, in-depth, intelligent, and eloquently written, and NPR called a masterwork endlessly engaging, and one of the best biographies of an American artist. Frank and I are excited to welcome to the show a fellow native New Yorker, a gifted writer, and someone who has probably forgotten more about cinema than the two of us will ever know. And a man who can think. Of one single nice thing to say about Rex Harrison. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Mark Harris.
0: (laughs) Mark. Hi. That's a lot to live up to. Was was some of that factual? Uh, I'm going to say all of it. Yeah. (laughs) I'll, I'll, I'll take all of that.
2: So so let's let's begin now. Rex Harrison, uh, original Doctor Doolittle, and uh, and uh, of course um, uh, my fair lady. Now you're saying
0: he was a scumbag. Well, I <laughs> in in my defense, um, I, I want to say that the only time that I was researching pictures at a revolution where I actually stopped and said, "I've got to go." find somebody to say something nice about this person <laughs> oh. was with Rex Harrison uh, cuz I thought this is too crazy it's too lopsided and so I started calling around um people who had known him and worked with him and you know that was already like you know quite some time uh after all of these events so so I was calling mostly old people or or the children of of people who'd worked with him and I can't remember who, but somebody said to me, you know, if you were writing about Rex Harrison in the 1940s or 1950s, yeah, there are probably people who uh, would have said that he was still human then. But by the time (laughs) you're writing, which is 1967, no, Rex was a monster. So what can I tell you? I tried.
1: And and an anti-Semite,
0: too. Well, there was that. Yes. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes,
2: tell us more about it. Oh, I always like sure to hear about he anti-Semites. He <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think, I think, you know, Harrison's uh, distaste for humanity went in many different directions. And, and, um, especially on this, on this movie, which, which was uh, a really unhappy production experience for him. Dr. Doolittle is what we're talking about. Yes. Um, I, uh, uh, you know, I have to give Rex Harrison credit for being one of the only people involved in the movie early on to catch on to the fact that this was not going to work. I mean, <laughs> he he got there before a lot of the other people involved in the movie did. But once he did get there, he took it out on everyone, and and one of the people was um, Anthony Newley, who who uh, had worked on songs for the movie and who uh-huh. just became one of Rex Harrison's many. Uh, punching bags and and the, yeah there was definitely uh some anti-semitism involved uh, yeah yeah you know and
1: Sammy and, Davis was a was a second punching bag uh
0: yeah right He wouldn't work mean, it, with, he
1: didn't want to work with a song and dance man he wanted to work with actors
0: right uh you know and Sidney Poitier had had turned down uh the part of this African king um uh that that is really something that makes you cringe now, mm-hmm. um, but but Rex Harrison, you know they, oh he, it's just it's too terrible. I mean this this thing that he said. <laughs> how, how do you like our jungle when when um, this? Oh, when Haile
1: Selassie showed up. Yeah, when yeah.
0: Haile Selassie came to the set. Right. Um, you just it, that that was. Really flabbergasting, and and I I only put that in the book after getting it confirmed by uh, a couple of people, including one person who was there. So,
2: and and Anthony Newley, of course, was a Jew, and and yeah, I heard he used to make anti-Semitic remarks to him all the time.
0: Yeah, I I I mean, of course, uh, you know, Anthony newly had passed away long before I, I started uh, uh-huh. working on the book. So I didn't get to talk to him. And I'm sure there were a lot of firsthand stories that he really could have told me about that. But yeah, it's, I mean, we should also say that uh, Rex Harrison was a huge drinker. And, and you know, I, I always think that, like, the alcoholism is the the secret Character in my books, it's like it's like the sixth director in five came back, and it's the sixth movie in Pictures of a Revolution. It like it, it affects so much and so many people mm-hmm. that I and I think I really do think that when Rex Harrison drank a lot, he he became even more monstrous and and less censored. You know, the things that he probably would have had the the discretion not to say out loud uh, started to come out.
2: He he was kind of like Paul Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Lynn was a uh, uh, horrible drunk. It's and come up really on the show. Vicious, yeah. yes, and and viciously anti-Semitic. So the two go hand
1: in hand. I think. I, the,
0: this is the fastest I've ever gotten to Paul Lind in an interview, and I <laughs> I, a, I couldn't be happier. <laughs> You're in the right, in the right <laughs> place, Mark. That's all right.
2: For those of you who don't know, Anthony Newley used to sing, What kind of fool and I Who never fell in love You think that I'm the only one That I've been thinking of
1: Mark, in all the interviews you've done for for Pictures at a Revolution, did anyone treat you to an Anthony Newley impression?
0: It has not yet come up. It's a first. Um, Yeah,
1: Yeah,
2: I I do it because the kids like it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We won't stay on Harrison, but you have to tell Gilbert one thing from the book. There are certain things I I find when I'm doing research, and I I should circle it and put a little G next to it because I know it's a special tidbit for Gilbert. And this would be the the oddest piece of information about Rex Harrison that came out of the book. And you know what I'm referring to? The song lyrics about his genitalia? While his wife did handstands.
0: Oh right, yes, yes. Um, I I should have. I should probably have those lyrics in front of me, although I couldn't do them justice. Um, yeah. The, uh, uh, Rex Harrison was married to uh, Rachel Roberts, who was really like a wonderful actress, yes. but um, you know, suffered from very serious uh, mental illness issues, and at one point. Um, she literally when they were when they were filming in the Caribbean uh, after a day's shooting she uh, she decided that she was going to swim out to um, the seal cage uh, and set them all free uh, so th- there was there was a lot of stuff like that but yeah, there was a big Hollywood party where she did um handstands uh pantiless handstands well <laughs> Rex Harrison sang an ode to his junk
2: <laughs> there you go Gil and, and and Frank was telling me this that during uh, uh, Dr. Doolittle the animals were attacking
1: <laughs> the people
0: a lot of bites there were bites there there was a, like a truly epic amount of uh, poop and pee because this was the you know pre-CG era Um you know, they spent six months teaching a chimpanzee to fry an egg. Um, uh, <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god!
1: There's also the squirrel that the, 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 they they were wiring down a squirrel. Right.
0: They, they, they tried to like wi- tie a squirrel to a fence post or something Insanity. with a wire so that it would just. Yeah, I mean things like you, you know that that thing that that you see saying no animals were harmed in the sure. making of this motion yeah. picture. This yeah. movie was made before that. Yes. Sadly. Um, yeah, it would it would of, not get that seal of approval.
2: This is of that era when Westerns they used to have trick wires yeah. for horses to trip over to look like they've been shot. And then they have to be shot right. afterwards.
0: I don't think they did anything that um sadistic, uh, but um I don't know if, if I can use this word, but you'll Cut it out if I can't. Um, There's one point when um, uh, they, the shooting shut down for three days, um, and this actually uh, connects to Mike Nichols because Herbert Ross, who was doing all the choreography right. for Doctor Doolittle, was also working with Mike Nichols on a Broadway show, and suddenly showed up uh, in the rehearsal room. and And Mike said, "What are you doing here? Uh, I, I thought you were uh, you were on Doolittle all week." And Herbert Ross said, we're shut down for three days. The giraffe tripped over his own cock.
1: <laughs> yes, you, you don't have to have any, any question about using profanity here. Gilbert insists on it.
2: Yeah, yeah I, it has to be a certain amount of profanity in each episode. And, oh, and the baby in Family Guy is based on Rex Harrison.
0: <laughs> there you that, go. That really sort of evil, yeah. That, that very dry <laughs> delivery yeah I mean you know I saw I saw dr Doolittle when I was a kid uh, you know I was very very young when it came out but um, I remember loving it and thinking he was great so so his his lack of professionalism did not extend to in front of the camera he did his job um yep. but uh, but he was a rough rough guy to work with.
2: And I was, I was in the Eddie Murphy, Doctor Doolittle. There
0: you go. Oh, how was that? I was, did
2: yeah, you? I well, I just did the voice of the obsessive compulsive dog.
0: <laughs> so, so there was no, <laughs> like, you did not contend with animals face to face.
2: No, no. But I heard chimpanzees
1: are horrible creatures.
0: They said the same thing about Rex Harrison.
1: Gilbert, did you trip over your own cock at any point while making the— Oh, it's a curse. (laughs) (laughs) Let's talk about Poitier, um, uh, Mark, because—and by the way, the way you write both Five Came Back and Pictures of a Revolution is fascinating to me because you are moving between stories all the time, which is dizzying, but so grandly entertaining. I, I don't know how you do it.
0: Thank you. That That's the most challenging part, honestly, of, of writing those books was knowing how many plot lines I could keep in the air at once and when to cut away from one to the other.
1: Oh, it's expertly done. And I mean, I can't uh, I will I will say several times during this episode, I will tell our listeners to get these books, but also <laughs> to any writer's. You know, it's it's textbook to see how somebody k- keeps these threads going and moving. So, you know, for anybody who hasn't read Pictures of a Revolution, you're telling the story of the making of The Graduate, Dr. Doolittle, in the heat of the night, guess who's coming to dinner, and uh, Bonnie and Clyde all at once and and, and shifting and moving between the stories and, and, and looking for connective tissues and segues. Sometimes you don't even use segues, and it's wonderful. <laughs> but I, you're you, you you're my hero for doing that. But talk about Poitier, who comes up a lot in the book.
0: Right. Well, he, he was one reason that I was able to juggle five different plot lines because he stars in two of the movies, um, In the Heat of the Night and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, and almost had a co-starring role in Dr. Doolittle. So right, right. I was always looking for places to bring those stories together, and and he was a really – big one and you know his his journey uh from winning uh being the first black actor to win a best actor oscar in 1963 for Lilies of the Field mm-hmm. to you know through the mid 1960s all the way to the 1968 oscars where he stars in two of the best picture nominees and becomes you know the the number one box office star in America. I just found that a completely fascinating story to tell. It is he's fascinating. A, he's a fascinating guy.
1: And and Poitier, of course, he had different challenges. He did not want to play heavies because he thought that would work against him. He, he well,
0: he, he thought it would work against him, and also th- he he genuinely felt it would be um, I- irresponsible to his race. He I mean, he he said I could afford to play bad guys if there were. If there were six black stars in movies right now, but if I'm the only one, I, I can't do that. Yeah,
1: that's fa- that's fascinating. And he had to be very careful about what he said publicly about civil rights. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, so as not to alienate, you know, a, a major part of the uh, of the audience of the movie right, going public. I
0: mean, I mean, walking this tightrope where where you know he it, it was really tricky because. Um, he, he wanted to serve his own people well. Uh, uh-huh. He wanted to represent his own people well. Um, he was also very conscious that he was largely at the mercy of uh, white filmmakers, white yes. directors, white producers, white audiences. Um, and, and you know, he gets to this really fascinating place where he finally does have n- not just public acceptance, but massive public acceptance. And, and you know, this was at a time when... When the Klan would uh, picket movie theaters that were yeah. showing some of his movies in the South, um, and just when he gets there, um, a younger generation of African American moviegoers begins to turn a little bit against him and to say, "Yeah, he's too much of an accommodator. He he's not radical enough. He's not um, you know aggressive enough about uh, civil rights." So it was really. It, it, just almost an impossible bind for someone to be in. I, yeah, he, I couldn't, really, he couldn't win. Yeah, I mean... And,
2: and there were a lot of black performers who have been attacked. Like, I remember Flip Wilson. They would say, oh, it's just variety. And and I'm, I would always think, well, no, they're entertainers. They want to entertain. And they, they get attacked for it, like, they should be doing like more something more political
0: right it's it's an unbelievable burden to have to carry I mean it's absurd to like have to carry the um expectations of an entire race of people and the, and and to be like the embodiment of their best values and all of their hopes it like no one person can can do that or hope to do it so uh I think he he bore that burden with incredible grace I think probably of all the people in in Pictures at a Revolution he was the one i was most uh moved to write about
1: yeah yeah and it, it, it's heartbreaking to read about that times uh op-ed uh, uh i mean like, like i said when i say he couldn't win i mean he was getting blowback from every direction including from his from his own race from people of his own race that i i i, I looking back i can't believe the times published that the, right. the, that that well, hit piece
0: well, you, you know it, it, it's it's like then as now, you know, there's always going to be a market for, you know, an op ed or an essay that throws a grenade into the middle of a conversation, and and um, you know, so so yeah, I mean, he he, you know, he survived all this, but there was a really rough point in the mid uh, in the late 1960s and early 1970s when when he really felt um, kind of shocked and angry that that people he felt he had been working on behalf of, mm-hmm. um, uh, he felt they were turning against him uh, and, and just sort of rejecting him as yesterday's news and, and saying... I mean, it's a lot like the fights, uh, you know, between, like, hard-left progressives and the the rest of the Democratic Party. You know, mm-hmm. if you have someone saying, listen, I have to try to get as many people in this coalition as possible... Of course. And someone on your left flank always saying, like, yeah, but you know what, you're letting us down, this isn't good enough... It's it's um, I think, uh, you know, in the case of Poitier, it's it's upsetting to realize that he was blamed for things that really the, the whole system should have been blamed for. But but it's it's always easier to go after a person than it is to go after a system. Mm-hmm.
2: We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast. But first, a word from our sponsor.
1: Well, we're going to jump around uh, in this interview much the way you do in the books. <laughs> and we'll come, we'll come back to Pictures at a Revolution. Uh, uh, we have to talk a li- just a, a little bit about, a lot actually, about Five Came Back. Uh, we both watched, I have the book, Gilbert watched the, the docuseries. I mean, riveting.
0: Thanks, yeah. thanks. It, that was an exciting book to do, completely different than the first one.
2: And and tell us tell us the whole story
0: of it. Okay, uh, I, sure. Yeah. Well, well, five came back came about for me because uh, that that was a period of movie making and of Hollywood history that I had always avoided. Um, you know, the time when suddenly people disappeared and didn't make movies for a while because they were fighting a war, and I wanted to know more about it. So the story of the book is the story of five directors: um, George Stevens, William Wyler. Uh, John Huston, John Ford, and Frank Capra, who...
2: All all Academy Award
0: winners. All Academy Award winners. Really like the the sort of powerhouses of Hollywood, who pretty soon after Pearl Harbor suspended their careers to go, in Capra's case, to Washington, D.C., and in the case of the other four, all around the world, to film documentaries, to... Shoot propaganda films to document the war um, and and really spent the next several years of their lives doing that everywhere from uh, the Aleutian Islands mm-hmm. to um, Italy to the liberation of Paris to uh, ultimately the liberation of the camps um, where where George Stevens's work uh, ended up being used as evidence in the Nuremberg trial that's fascinating, yeah.
2: And and I heard, I, I mean, all of them were affected, but George Stevens especially, so.
0: I think he was affected most, I mean, they they all, it, it was a defining thing for all of them for the rest of their lives, and that's something I did not know when I started the book, that it, that it really, like, for better and for worse, reshaped them and uh-huh. reshaped their careers, but probably no one more than George Stevens, because he was the only one, I mean, he saw the worst of it. He, he... He was the one who led uh, a crew of, of uh, cameramen and soundmen uh, into, um, into the camps and, and filmed what, you know, ended up being uh, documentary evidence. I mean, literal evidence. You know, these images that we now know um, uh, from, from many documentaries and from a, a number of fiction films he was the first filmmaker really to see that. And and it's amazing to me that his, because what he saw was so awful um, uh, that most of it could never have been shown in a newsreel Mm -hmm. or in a documentary in an American theater at the time, Mm -hmm. but he shot it anyway. It was like he, he, he knew instinctively that, that, the job of anyone there who was holding a camera was to document this, to make it that much harder for people to say, no, that it could never have happened. It didn't happen like that. That's not true. I mean, people still said it, but at least there was this footage.
1: I mean, it affected him so much that that he felt that he could not make frivolous films, frivolous comedies anymore. A man who was known for a light touch right? as a, um, as a director.
0: Yeah, I mean, of all five of the directors, Stevens is the one who's post-war career and uh, whose pre-war career look like the work of two different men in a way. I mean, the you know, he did uh, Astaire and Rogers musicals before the war and sure. Laurel and Hardy films and, and like light screwball comedies. And then uh, after the war, it's much heavier. It's stuff like A Place in the Sun and Giant and The Diary of Anne Frank, really big, epic dramas. He just felt, it, it wasn't that he felt, you know, comedies are are frivolous, uh, and I can only do important things now. That wasn't the thinking; it was more that he just felt he didn't have a a, a comedy heart left in him mm-hmm. after after what he had seen. Understandably,
2: and the other one affected uh, in a strange way, William Wilder.
0: Right. I mean, he's he and physically. Well, yeah, physically, I mean, he lost his hearing, yeah. and that was a, a really significant thing for for the rest of his career. Um, but I think I think for Weiler, uh, it, it kind of impelled him to greatness. I mean, he was making pretty wonderful movies before the war, but True. then you know he comes back and does this this to me his defining work, the best years of our lives, uh, and it's it's really incredible to me because you know things move so fast now, but but it, the the extraordinary fact of a, a Hollywood filmmaker in 1946, one year after the end of the war, making a, a movie about this thing that everyone was experiencing on some level or another, the return uh, of servicemen to their towns, to their cities, to their wives and children, to their workplaces, and what kind of stresses that was causing. Um, to make a movie that, that um, depicted those guys not as larger-than-life heroes, but as fragile, flawed men who were actually vulnerable and struggling with something. I, I really do think that that um, that movie genuinely changed people's understanding of what the issues for uh, returning veterans yeah. were. It's a great um, work of art, you know, and and everybody and, and- saw it. Like everybody went to see that movie.
2: And how? Tell us how how William Wyler went there. uh He
0: he was um, one of the things he did was to film bomber missions, um, and uh, that meant he literally would go up in the pl- in the bombers with with a crew of ten people and shoot. Sometimes, you know, he'd crawl around in the belly of the plane to shoot through the this opening in the bottom, and those those uh, those planes were all unpressurized so you had to have um, oxygen over your mouth it was freezing cold you had to wear gloves I mean the conditions were really rough and then I'm not it's not clear exactly what happened but he was he was shooting uh, the Italian coast um, uh, in an unpressurized plane uh, kind of surveying possible locations to, to make another documentary and uh, the plane uh, came in for a landing and when he got out of the plane, he couldn't hear. Like, all of a sudden, you know, he went up a hearing person, came down uh, a hearing impaired person. And, you know, he, he waited for his hearing to come back. And, uh, you know, with every day, it just became more apparent that it was not going to.
1: A real sacrifice. And, you know, the, the other in- harrowing thing about Wyler in the film and in the book is when he goes back to his, his village... Right, and and there isn't anybody left.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, Weiler uh, was uh, an emigrant. He 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 came from this uh, this sort of borderline part of France that was at various times in his life under the control of France, under the control of Germany, um, and uh, you know, the, so the war was very. Uh, firsthand personal to him you know he had relatives who were desperately trying you know he was trying to uh bring them over before it it became too late and at that point uh that meant that he had to uh kind of financially guarantee everyone he brought over and so uh, there's a point in the war where he has this opportunity to uh kind of go semi-awol for a few days and and uh take a convoy uh-huh. back to his um, his hometown and, uh, you know, where he'd lived until he was, I think, 17 or 18. And he gets there and it, almost everyone he knew uh, was just gone. And And the people in the village didn't really talk about it that much. They just said they were gone. It was almost as if it was too much to say we think they're dead or we think they're in the camps. It was just, you know... Uh, so, uh, t- just a stunningly painful um, yeah. thing to have to contend with.
2: And and one time there was a story that he was coming out of a hotel. In,
0: I think it's in the movie.
1: You talking yeah, about when he yeah, took the swing ten, at the cab driver?
2: Yeah, like the guy says, like calls his passenger a a Jew son of a bitch. Right. I something. think
0: it was like the 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 he the cab driver was saying that. Uh, about the person who had just gotten out or something, as Weiler was getting in, but but um, Weiler uh, Wyler took a swing at him and and um, came really really close to being uh, court martialed. I mean that that could have cut his military career uh, very short. Um, Weiler was the uh, is the only um, Jewish director of the five that I uh-huh. that I wrote about, and and you know it, his story. It was obviously incredibly important for me to have it in there.
1: There are so many major moments, both in the book and in the movie. Gilbert and I were also fascinated by Ford, uh, and for many reasons, both, both being present at the Battle of Midway, also what happened when he saw the carnage uh, uh, at, at D-Day, he disappeared into a bottle.
0: Right. I mean, Ford probably struggled with uh, alcohol more than any of the, mm-hmm. the directors that I wrote about. And, and he did a great deal during the war. Um, I mean, for him, uh, you know, and I think you can uh, tell this from his movies, that he was constantly fascinated and obsessed with stories of what courage means, what risking yourself means, what putting yourself on the line means. And he saw the war in so many ways as a test for himself. Like, at what kind of man am I? He was he was old enough, just old enough to have served in in World War One, and um, so World War Two was really going to be his his test. And he was at Midway, um, uh, and and uh, then you know did did a lot of work um, did a lot of work elsewhere, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in the Pacific, and um, but Midway was really significant for him because although that was one of the first really big American victories in the Pacific in, in 1942, um, what really struck Ford so hard was the losses that one day he could be, you know, shooting a group of 30 young men climbing or clowning around. And, and that the the next day, some of those men would be gone. Yeah. Um, so you can see in, uh, the movie he made, the battle of Midway, which is about a 20 minute, Film that that showed over and over and over again in in theaters that everyone who went to the movies saw it. Um, you can see that where another director might have just made a big rah rah cheerful thing about this gigantic American victory, um, Ford makes room for grief and sadness and sorrow and and you can't come away from that film without uh, understanding that it, it, this experience was about. Loss, not just about victory,
2: and uh, also at, for while he was alive, the biggest, most courageous, toughest hero was John Wayne. He was the symbol of uh, for
1: many people being a
2: hero, right? And so, what was the and, real story?
0: And and Ford was, uh, you know, Ford had sort of made Wayne's reputation, you know, that it was, it was stagecoach in 1939 that, that Uh really started to cement Ford or or started to cement Wayne in the public eye as, you know, the cowboy hero. And, and in reality, uh, John Wayne was not particularly interested in serving in World War II. He had kids, he, he kept hemming and hawing and telling Ford, yeah, I'm going to do it, you know, in, in, in three months or in six months, I'm going to do it. Um, and, uh, uh, Finally, he just said, you know, I have kids and I'm married and, uh, you know, it would be bad for uh, war morale if um, I got killed in action or something, which in fairness is something that the um, that that the war department uh, in Washington was very worried about. They were not enthusiastic about having movie stars go to war because because they knew how crushing it would be if if, you know, Jimmy Stewart went. Down in a plane, or if, if John Ford was killed, or John Wayne was killed in action, and yet Stewart um, went,
1: Stewart went and flew uh, and flew missions.
0: Stewart went and flew missions. Um, I think he, I think Jimmy Stewart was actually uh, ended up higher ranking than any other mm-hmm. uh, Hollywood star who served in. I think in that's World right. War um, yeah, he went
2: on bomber
0: yes, missions, right? Yeah, and um, and Wayne did not end up serving. He did USO shows and things like that and fundraising, but I, I think. Um, I think Ford really objected to it and and was angry at Wayne. I think he felt let down by Wayne, and so in the first movie that Ford makes after uh, the war is uh, just about over, this um, a film about World War Two and about the Pacific uh, called um, "They Were Expendable." He puts um, he puts John Wayne in it, uh, but he's really brutal to Wayne during yeah. the shooting, and finally, like. Uh, lashes out at him uh, so so harshly did he say something that...
1: about to scan- stay home and scanning scanning for air raids and collecting paychecks
0: I, yeah I think he said that in a in in a letter to his wife or something but but if, the, when they were shooting the movie um, he actually said to Wayne in front of the whole cast and crew you know um, uh, something like you know my god don't you even know how to give us a loot Um, and, uh, and Wayne was just, like, really shocked and hurt, and I think Ford was shocked at, like, that he had, like, gone farther than he had intended to or meant to, um, and, and, uh, he apologized, but, uh, and, and of course he worked with Wayne many, many more times, but, um but you know i think the tension between uh, people who served and people who didn't was was very real and it was just embodied in that relationship i'm sure
1: i one of the one of the the harrowing moments one of the most dramatic moments in both in the book and in the docu series is when capra screens triumph of the will and he's so knocked out by what lenny Riefenstahl was able to do that he he
0: he lost hope right i mean one of the things that really surprised me was that uh, after this massive recruitment effort where where Washington and the Defense Department, basically the War Department, excuse me, basically sends emissaries to Hollywood saying, we need your best and brightest to, to create the U.S. documentary and propaganda war effort. They get to Washington and they have almost no money, no budget to make these movies mm-hmm. with. So, uh, you know... Uh, Capra sees Triumph of the Will because uh, I think um, the Museum of Modern Art may have had a print, or the Treasury Department may have seized a print. Um, and he looks at it, uh, and he, his reaction is, "We're going to lose. We're doomed. Yeah. There's no way that we can um, match the kind of spectacle and size. Because the, one of the things you really get from Triumph of the Will, one of one of the most effective pieces of the propaganda that it is is this this feeling that there are endless unified seas of germans like Mm -hmm. the the wideness of that image the 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 sheer number of people makes you think this is a kind of invincible unified fighting force and and out of that out of that dejection that capra felt comes his great inspiration which is that he's going to use all of the foreign propaganda films that have been seized by the government, um, he's going to use that footage and and turn it against them. And that will not only solve the problem of what kind of movies uh, he needs to make, but solve the problem that he has no money to make them. It was a stroke of brilliance, really. Yeah.
2: And when William Wyler was making Mrs. Miniver, uh, he was having trouble with the studio heads.
0: Right. It's, uh, Mrs. Miniver is such a fascinating movie because it, it literally splits right down the middle in terms of being made before Pearl Harbor and after Pearl Harbor. I mean, it's a movie that was conceived and written and started to shoot at a moment when the war was something that was of great concern because it was happening in England and, you know, England was under siege uh, from, from Germany. Um, but, but then suddenly um, the, the Pearl Harbor happens and it's our war. We're, we're in it. It's happening. And um, so there's a – Wyler loved to tell this story that there's this – you know, there's a scene uh, where um, a downed uh, German soldier comes and holds uh, Mrs. Miniver, who's the brave uh-huh. English housewife who is at the heart of the movie, holds her hostage and um, – uh, Louis B. Mayer, who ran MGM and who, you know, was doing business with Germany until very, very late in the game, sort of said, you know, do, does, does the German have to be such a murderous bad guy? And and Weiler said, um, you know, if we had six Germans in, in the movie, we could have all kinds of different Germans, but I have one. And and so I'm going to show people what, what we're fighting. And then Pearl Harbor happened, and, and suddenly... Um, Mayer's objections just went away and said, you know, he said, do whatever you want with that German. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Which brings um, so. up the
1: larger question. Uh, you, you, I, I assume you saw Mank Yes. Yeah, this this came up in Mank too, which, as, as you'll remember, which was the, the studio's what's, – what's the word? Passivity? Uh, uh, and, and it's the reasons for it, which I always thought were commerce, were strictly commerce reasons, that, as you point out in the book, the reasons were more complicated than that because these men, these moguls were Jewish – they feared a certain kind of uh, right. anti-Semitism or, or negative reaction in their own country.
0: Yeah, anti-Semitism is definitely uh, a fair thing to call it. I mean, they, this, you know, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in America uh, uh, in those years, and a lot of it was directed at Hollywood. I mean, a lot of it is still directed at Hollywood, but, but back then it was a very, it, it was a pretty common thing to talk about these, uh, the, the first and second generation Jews who ran movie studios, it was pretty common for anti-Semites to talk about them as as people of divided loyalty. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, they're Americans, but really isn't their allegiance to the old country, you know? Uh, and and if, if they're making movies, this is in the like late 30s and early 40s, if they're making movies kind of advocating that we should get into the war, aren't they really doing that to protect those, their people, whether it's in America's interest or not? I mean, there was a lot of that kind of uh, rhetoric and it really did not, um, I mean, it took Pearl Harbor for that to get put away because Mm -hmm. literally the week before Pearl Harbor, there were still, you know, uh, congressional hearings were happening about um, whether Hollywood was guilty of uh, making too much pro-war propaganda.
2: No, and movies were scared for the longest time of making Germans look bad and and or addressing Hitler. And then uh, there was The Mortal We've Storm. We've talked about
1: The Mortal Storm on this show, yeah. yeah.
2: And also importantly, before The Great Dictator... Uh, you Nazi spy the Three Stooges, the Three
1: Stooges <laughs> right. did. Well there was also, yeah. conf- also Confessions by, of a Nazi uh, spy was also. A, yeah. yeah so a I
0: think by 1938 39 um, Some of the studios especially Warner Brothers Which was the most kind of upfront out there You know pro intervention uh, Of all the studios Were getting a little bolder about Saying we're not going to tiptoe around this This subject matter anymore Um but it took a while to get there.
2: And, and the Stooges followed it up with one that's my f- one of my favorites, Three Stooges titles of I'll Never Hile Again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know, there's this big uh, woman's melodrama that came out around that time called uh, Valiant is the Word for Carrie. And the Stooges made a parody of it called Violent is the Word for Curly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> this man knows his onions
0: Yeah We'll,
1: we'll, we'll come back to We're going we're gonna to jump around as you do as I said we'll, And we'll come back to uh, We'll come back to Five Came Back uh, 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 Have to get into the Nichols book which, okay. is, which is your newest project And as Gilbert explained in the introduction A massive undertaking uh, I, I read it And I couldn't I, Honestly I could say I, I'd like to put this down for a month And read it again it was it was absolutely fascinating. Not only uh, not only to, to to dig inside his creative process, but the man the man was troubled. The man was well, complicated.
0: Yeah, very complicated. Um, uh, you know, this was a big departure for me. I'd never written a biography before, mm-hmm. and um, you know, you talked about the the trickiness a little bit of structuring uh, those five stranded narratives. Yeah, but, I was just, was uh, this was this one any easier? Well, it's way easier <laughs> to write in a linear uh, in terms fashion? Of structuring yeah because yeah. the structure is his life, but on the other hand, there's nothing to cut away to like you, right. you good point. You are kind of at the mercy of what happened and and so um, it, for me the, like the journey of this book, which I really love taking was just trying to understand uh, a really fascinating and resourceful and great creative artist in his 20s. And his 30s and 40s and 50s and then his 60s and 70s and 80s to try to think, like, at any stage of your life, at any stage of your career, what are your priorities? Are you still learning from things? What kind of mistakes are you making and how do you recover from them? What are your artistic goals? Like, what do you hope for? I uh-huh. just, like, I, I honestly can say I never had a day on this book when I was uh, bored. Um, you know, I no, had, you I had some frustrating days when I couldn't find something I wanted to find or couldn't talk to someone I wanted to talk to, but, but, you know, I interviewed about 250 people for it. And honestly, if I had had more time, I could have kept going. I, I was not out of people to interview. I just had to stop, uh, talking to people and start writing.
2: And and what was
0: his childhood like? Turbulent. Really rough. I mean, yeah. And, you know, Unhappy. it's interesting that we're talking about this right out of Five Came Back because uh, Mike was a German emigre. He was born in Berlin. Um, he uh, lost his hair permanently when he was four, uh, uh, when he had uh, some kind of uh, reaction to a contaminated uh, vaccination. Or maybe it was just an allergic reaction. Um, and then he and his family, first his father, and then he and his little brother, and then finally his mother, uh, fled Berlin for New York. Uh, and and he, he, got, he got to New York in, um, I think, 1939 or 1940. Uh, and, and that's where his story begins, on the Upper West Side.
1: He was also close to an aunt that was killed by a, tax, uh, killed, uh, by a bus.
0: Right. I mean, just a lot
1: of terrible breaks and, and, right, and, and really tragedies. rough things.
0: I mean, his his father, who was a doctor, yeah. um, uh, the first work he got when he came to uh, That's New also York sad. was as, a, as an x-ray technician. Um, and, you know, he was trying to set up a viable life so that he could bring his family over. And uh, the feeling is that because of Exposure to radiation, he got leukemia and died very, very quickly. Went from sick to gone within about two weeks when Mike was um, just about uh, 12 years old. Uh, and that in turn um, slid the family into temporary poverty, and his mother really suffered from uh, a lot of depression and some hypochondria. So uh, he did not have in any way a, a really privileged start in life. He, no. he he came in with sort of several strikes against him.
1: Uh, we should also point out too, and and you've been asked a lot. Uh, you've been doing a lot of interviews for this book. You 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 knew the man a bit. You're married. You're married to the celebrated playwright and screenwriter Tony Kushner, I believe. Mike and Diane Sawyer were at your. Your your, right. your was it your your wedding or your commitment? Uh,
0: yep. Your yeah. Yep, our wedding. Yeah.
1: Um, and so, yeah. so and then you asked the family for permission before you you dived into this.
0: I did. I did because I, I I knew Mike for the last twelve or so years of his life, and um, I I I just I knew it was going to take years to do this book, and uh, if. If Diane or any of Mike's three children uh-huh. uh, had had not wanted it to happen, had found it objectionable for any reason, I just wouldn't have done it because uh, you know it, it, it. Doing a book like this is hard enough, and and you know I just wouldn't have felt right about it. But they were very gracious about giving their consent, and um, uh, and that helped. I think particularly Diane. Uh, Giving me permission to say publicly that she was okay with my writing this opened a lot of doors in terms of uh, getting to talk to people, which was such an essential part of this book. So I really appreciate that.
2: And and there's a story that made me laugh out loud. Um, well, originally they they were all after Robert Redford to star in this. <laughs> oh, that's a good story. And could could you tell that story? <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, he um Redford really wanted to do it.
1: Well, and they had um, a, they had a working relationship from Barefoot in the Park.
0: Right, right, right. Barefoot in the Park was the first thing that Mike directed on Broadway and Redford was the male lead. So, uh Redford really wanted to do it and you know, now when you think of The Graduate, um you think well that's crazy, but if you read the novel The Graduate, the character is actually much more Redford-like than Dustin Hoffman. I mean, he's blonde, he's a track star mm-hmm. He goes off and fights forest fires in Northern California mm-hmm. At one point, one point in the book Which is like a good thing to leave out of the movie um, So it wasn't a huge stretch for uh, Redford to think he was right for it but, but Nichols saw the character completely differently And and finally said to Redford I'm sorry, it's not going to be you And uh, Redford said, why not? And, and he said, well uh you know no, no one will believe you. I mean like when was the last time uh you struck out with a girl and and according to Nichols, Redford literally responded, "What do you mean <laughs> um, <laughs> It took him forever to cast it. It, it did y- it took a really long time and and now you know you think, well, Dustin Hoffman, of course, it could only be him, sure, but he was completely not famous, I mean. You know, it's his, It's Mike's second movie after "Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf," which starred literally the most famous couple in the world. Right, and he casts a complete unknown. So in, in the leading part. Yeah, it's amazing.
1: And Hoffman, uh, his, his his reaction uh, was was anything other than what you would expect. He thought he was miscast.
0: Yeah, it's true. He he he. If said not that his reaction was really like <laughs> I, I'm I'm working with like the hottest filmmaker in the country right now and um, I'm going to ruin his movie you know this is going to fail and it's going to fail because of me and uh, you know their their relationship on the set during the shoot was very very complicated because um, Nichols could be stern and almost sadistic sometimes and, and edging toward the cruel mm-hmm. and at other times very encouraging and very engaged and very willing to like do whatever needed to be done, whatever Hoffman needed to uh, help draw the performance out of him.
1: One, one gets the sense, and you cover this territory—you cover the making of *The Graduate*, obviously here in the Nichols book, but also in *Pictures at a Revolution*. One gets the set—the sense that it wasn't a happy set. Uh, and Bancroft had issues. Why was he working over Hoffman so much to create to create a feeling of neurosis? Because, I, I because think, he was cruel at times.
0: I don't think it was that strategic necessarily. I uh-huh. think it was, you know, it's interesting. with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which he had made just before that. Mike's attitude was really, it, it only has a cast of four. And and so his attitude was really, it's us against the world. Like, the four of us and and I are on the state. the four of you and I are on the same team. And we're going to do this. We're going to show them. And this movie, The Graduate, I think... It was more somehow locked inside of Mike's head while he was making it. I mean, he 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 eventually gave all the actors what they need, and 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 uh, you know he he was able to get the movie he wanted, but I don't think he was that able to articulate the movie he wanted. It was a little bit more of an "I'll know it when I see it" thing. So I know that that on the graduate he felt. Um, he felt very alone as a director in many ways. Um, you know, just desperate to prove that Virginia Woolf wasn't a fluke, and and very much keeping his own counsel. And and you know, he worked really closely with the cinematographer, and that was a good relationship. But even even that kind of went sour after Mike was you know yelled at the crew one mm-hmm. too many times. So mm-hmm. it was a, it was a really complicated. Um, production and i I think none of the actors were necessarily the easiest uh people in the world and and you know there were and it took a very long time to shoot um you know it was it was mike's first time shooting at a lot of different locations and so much
1: complexity to it he winds up firing hackman who's an old friend of hoffman's we know the history that hoffman used to sleep on Gene hackman's floor he fires hackman replaces him with murray hamilton by the way, Hackman comes back. I imagine they stayed uh, cordial because Hackman comes back and works for Nichols, both in Postcards from the Edge and the Birdcage. He never worked with Hoffman again. No, he didn't.
2: And oh, oh, he did in that that one. I uh, what the jury?
1: No, something. no, I mean Nichols never worked with Hoffman.
0: Oh, Nichols. Yeah. Worked, never Which worked with,
1: with is Hoffman. that? Is sure. that particularly
0: telling? Um, I I don't know. I mean, I, I know that it's uh. uh a a tense, um, you know, that was a very tense relationship, but, but Hoffman in in recent years, um, has said that one of his great regrets is that he, he had, he said three or four further opportunities to work with Mike and he didn't take any of them. And I, I don't know what they all were, but I know at least one of them, which was, um, the, the Beckett play waiting for Godot that, that eventually um, Robin Williams. With Robin Williams and Steve Steve Martin, Martin, but but the first try at that, the first uh, read-through of it um, was with Hoffman, and I think if if Hoffman had wanted to do that and had been available, Mike absolutely would have uh, worked with him again. So there was no grudge held
1: like there was with Matthau, say.
0: I don't think so. When, you know, when they no, definitely it was not a it was not a Walter Matthau or a George C. Scott. George C.
1: Scott. Uh, yes. You know,
0: situation. Um uh, when when Hoffman and Nichols both got to the age of sort of lifetime achievement awards, um they they didn't really show up for each other, but they would send funny messages. Like I when see. when Nichols was honored um by uh uh the Film Society of Lincoln Center and got up to make his acceptance speech, um uh, he he said, "Where's Dustin Hoffman? It's like the monster not showing up for Frankenstein." Um, so there, there was a kind of warm, jesting, you know, ribbing thing between them.
2: And and um, tell uh, another uh, great actor who I hear terrible things about. And that's George C. Scott. Well, you won't
1: hear too yeah. many nice things about him in in
0: Mark's book either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think again, alcohol was a big sure. factor there. But um, I mean, physically, physically dragging
1: his wife around the set of uh, uh, was it the Day of the Dolphin?
0: The Day of the Dolphin. Yeah. Pleasant. I mean, uh, uh, Mike actually worked with Scott four times uh, uh-huh. in a pretty compressed period of time, uh, and and the Day of the Dolphin. Um, uh, was really it was a sort of one for you one for me thing where um i think mike kind of said look if you if you star in this movie for me um because george c scott was a big star at that moment that was just a couple of years after patton Mm -hmm. um if you star in this movie for me i'll direct you uh in new york on broadway in uncle vanya um and and he did i mean uh, and Scott was as good as his word. But but uh, after a very rough time, I mean, Scott was not easy on Dave the Dolphin. And then Uncle Vanya is when, when they really fell out and just wouldn't work together again. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, the Day of the Dolphin, since you brought it up, I mean, is a, is a fascinating. Catch-22, his first taste of failure after he has been this, this infallible uh, uh, almost boy genius is fascinating, but Day of the Dolphin, which Buck Henry also wrote, and we had Buck here on the show. Nobody seems to know what it was or why they were doing it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, and it's you... a very, it's a very puzzling film to watch. Yeah, it's like dolphins fighting for and, the and army. Not, not at something. all something that you would expect from the. I, I guess the you know what Mike Nichols was
0: known for. Right, and it's based on this truly insane French novel where the dolphins not only talk but they talk in long long paragraphs about things like the necessity of staying in Vietnam. I mean, it's it, like as crazy as the the movie is, yes. the the novel is crazier. Um and and you know, Mike never really told the same story twice about why he made that movie. Like once Once uh, he said he did it as a favor to Roman Polanski, who was originally supposed to direct it, but that doesn't really track. And another time, and I think there's some truth in this, he and Buck Henry both said, you know, he contractually owed Joe Levine, who was the producer of The Graduate, one more film, and he had to get it done. And Why why did it have
1: to be that film?
0: (laughs) Right, right. Um, uh, But I found this funny old uh, audio tape of, um, from from probably six or seven years earlier of of him uh, improvising something with Elaine May, and he's he's going off on this wildly enthusiastic riff about how he's just read this thing that dolphins can understand human speech and that dolphins can talk. Dolphins can be, and you can hear that like Mike is genuinely. Uh, enthusiastic and excited about this and it's like one of the few times you will ever hear Elaine May at a loss for words (laughs) like she she does not know what to give him back in this improv moment so so I think part of the reason he made the movie was kind of as simple and as strange as he really liked the idea it's fascinating
2: and and uh getting uh, to George C. Scott and Patton. A uh, Steiger was originally asked. Yeah, to be Mar-
1: Mark talks about that in uh, in uh, in Revolution.
0: Yeah, all of those which
1: he kicked himself for forever. Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, all the casting misses, the almosts are are such fascinating, really fascinating things. Like what if what if Bob uh, what if Bob Dylan and Shirley MacLaine had starred in Bonnie and which Clyde? was Beatty's like... vision? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Like, it it could, you know, I feel like that's one of those butterfly flaps its wings um, things where, you know, the whole course of movie history could have been changed if if it had been them instead of Beatty and Faye Dunaway. What if Robert De Niro had starred in The Goodbye Girl? Oh, wait. Right. right. (laughs) (laughs) It almost happened. What if if Mike had finished
1: that? Yeah, yeah, what if Bogart Bogart slept here? It happened.
2: And and Roth Steiger always thought that By turning down Patton, had he done Patton, he could have been Vito Corleone in The Godfather.
0: Right. I think Steiger really was one of the few people who turned down a role and then envisioned the whole domino effect that that would have had on the rest of his career. So then what if he had been in The Godfather? And what would, like, would Brando have had his amazing comeback? Or, you know, where would he have found it, you know?
1: That's one of the things when reading these books, a lot of that turns up. A lot of that is the person not cast, the project not made. Nichols is turning down things like Animal House and Heaven Can Wait, you know, yeah, projects well, I, he didn't make. It's fat, a lot, So much of these, these, these documents that, you, that you've assembled is about roads not taken.
0: Well, I love that material always because, because it's not—I think people don't understand always that it's not about fate. You know, it, everything isn't predestined. You know that that so much that's really important and amazing in movies happens by accident or by coincidence, yes. or because someone isn't available, or because someone says no, or because someone happens to see a script uh, that they weren't even going to be offered. You know, it, it's it's well,
1: Dreyfus and the Goodbye Girl is a great example of that. He wins the Oscar. Right. Nickel starts out to make this picture with Marsha Marcia Mason based on a Simon script. Neil Simon called Bogart Slept Here. And De Niro is cast, and he's coming off a taxi driver, and everything goes wrong.
0: Right, right. <laughs> and and it's, it's one of the really rare times, because this doesn't even happen now, that um, they're a week into shooting, and... Um, Mike fires De Niro because he just they're not clicking at all and 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 Mike just can't seem to stand working with him. Um, and De Niro who talked to me for the book was really like so gracious and smart and interesting about that experience. That's nice. But but then after a couple of more weeks after having failed to um replace him they thought about Raul Julia and Tony Lobianco and a whole bunch of other Rex people. Rex Harrison. Um, <laughs> Rex Harrison did not come <laughs> out. Um, Tony Lo Bianco. He, 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 he shuts the movie down. Like they, they just yeah. give up, um, and you never hear about that anymore. Like a uh, uh, a movie uh, stops shooting after a week, basically because everyone involved says, "Actually, this sucks, and I don't think we should do it." Like that, that never happens. But it, you know, in this case, it led to. Neil Simon rewriting the script, and it becomes the Goodbye Girl, and you know it it
1: led to almost everyone's finest hour, with the possible (laughs) exception of Simon himself. We will return to Gilbert
2: Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. Tell us about the banking of the pawnbroker.
1: Well, that's another turning point, yeah, for Steiger, and and a turning point for the uh, for the for the production code.
0: That that's a really interesting one. I mean, it's yeah. That that I think that's the big historical thing about that 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 there were um, that there were bare breasts in the pawnbroker. That was a really big deal in 1964.
2: Uh, that was like the first non-porn, I think. Right. That had,
0: yeah. Right, and it had to be. You know, it's in the context of basically a, a Holocaust flashback. I mean, the whole movie is about this man, this pawnbroker played by Rod Steiger who is um uh is haunted by uh you know survivor's guilt and survivor's memories. And and so uh you know Sydney Lumet, who made that movie, did such a beautiful job um uh of like I think it's it's absolutely one of Steiger's best performances. And, oh it's great. And uh you know it's I I interviewed Sidney Lumet about it and for Pictures at a revolution and I really didn't need to, but it was, like, this was one of those things where I just had to chase my own curiosity and, like, I'm not going to pass up any opportunity to meet Sidney Lumet and talk sure. to him. And he was so great and so funny and so frank talking about this stuff. And I, I said, so, uh, what, what was uh, Rod Steiger... Um, what was Rod Steiger like as an actor? And Sidney Lumet sort of shrugged and he said, "Uh, you know, this, uh, designer, Boris Aronson, this, um, this Broadway designer once was asked what he, uh, thought of a certain columnist in a newspaper. And he said, Oh, I can't stand him for five cents. He gives you too much. Um, and, and he said, that's, that's how I felt about Rod Steiger for five cents. He gives you too much. Um, but but I think Lumet did an amazing job at maybe holding Steiger back a little bit, taming some of his, you know, cedary-chewing instincts. And it's a great performance, it, I think.
2: It seemed like Steiger uh, had faith in uh, Sidney Lumet. Sidney Lumet
1: wanted James Mason, as, as you point out in the
0: book, Mark. Right, but Steiger was a great choice, actually. I mean, I think that's a more believable you know, mm-hmm. it, it's. I mean, talk about roads not taken. Like James Mason was also the first choice for um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf. He that was originally who uh, the studio was thinking about. Uh, James Mason and Betty Davis. So
1: pictures in a rev- at a revolution opens with a road not taken. Isn't Beatty early in the book? Isn't Beatty trying to convince Stanley Kubrick to direct What's New Pussycat? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh my
0: God. I, it's hard. It's hard even to think of that as a road. Oh my God! You know, like. Uh, i I don't, you know, I guess you could picture some version of what's new pussycat, you know, that took three years to shoot. I told and, you in an
1: email a couple of weeks ago. we had Paula. Paula was here with with uh, with Benjamin. they are they're eagerly looking forward to getting their hands on the Nichols book and reading it. They told us. Oh
0: my gosh, well, i i I should uh, send it to them right away. I'll connect uh, you. Um, yeah. yeah,
1: here's a question from our mutual pal, Michael Weber, who is a new father. Michael has been on this show many times, so congratulations, Mike. Uh, why, question for Mark Why didn't Nichols direct more Neil Simon adaptations? He directed Bloxy Blues, but not Barefoot in the Park Plaza Suite, The Odd Couple or The Prisoner of Second Avenue When his career was in trouble, which happened more than once, or when he needed money he would bring a, uh, bringing a Neil Simon play to the big screen would have probably helped Which is at a point, I'd also like to point out a side, a side point of trivia that Gilbert saw the, uh, the production of Prisoner of Second Avenue with Lee Grant and Peter
0: Falk yeah. Oh wow. wow! That
2: was amazing. Yeah,
0: I wish I had been able to see that. Me too. You know, the the New York Public Library has a lot of these older Broadway shows preserved, but that was a little too, or like that was just before videotaping, so they there's no record of that performance. Um, you know, Mike always said that uh, he had absolutely no interest in directing a movie version of something that he had directed on stage Mm -hmm. that, that once it was, um, once it was, uh, done, once the stage production was done, he said the material, it was like the material was dead for him. Um, and so, although he did originate all of those, um, those Neil Simon, I mean, he, he directed the first production of barefoot in the park and odd couple and Plaza suite and prisoner of second Avenue. he, he just never wanted to do the movies, and the only, the only Neil Simon movie he did do, Biloxi, Biloxi Blues, Blues*, was one he had not directed on stage. It's a pretty good movie. Yeah. By the it way, was, it was great performance I mean,
1: by Christopher Walken.
0: Mike had had some tough times and was uh, looking to get back into directing movies by doing something that was he felt was really like in his comfort zone, and and, and it was.
2: There was a cartoon during World War II that Mel Blanc. I uh, Did the voice? Oh, and, for doc, and the thing with Doctor
1: Seuss that. was involved too.
0: Oh, right. Is this Private Snafu? Private Snafu.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's yes. Fascinating. It's in the. It's in the. The Netflix doc. It,
0: it's the Private Snafu is just amazing, and and sometimes you know the the uh, the short cartoons. I think there's a couple of dozen of them. Um, uh, sometimes they show up on YouTube, and and if you can ever find them, it's it's they're so worth chasing down um, because they were they were basically like. Uh, little kind of instructional things for GIs. Um, And they were never meant to be seen by a civilian audience. It was only for soldiers. Uh, You know, here's uh, like, some of them were just like, don't be lazy or don't repeat things that you overhear. Um, And some of them were a little, uh, you know, uh, rougher. Like here's how not to get, you know, a sexually transmitted disease. Um, but it's all done in like the, the persona of this, this, this cartoon character, Private Snafu, who looks a lot like Elmer Fudd. Um, he's like an early try at Elmer Fudd and he can't do anything right. And usually, you know, at the end of half the cartoons, I think he ends up dead or blown up or, or blowing up something, um, only to kind of miraculously return for the next one. But they're really, they're really funny, and they're really racy, and like, in, in yeah, a I can't way believe what you, they got away with. The four right, well, got away with it because it was, it was for soldiers, sure, and and you know, no one else was ever supposed to see them. Um, so, uh, and and you know, it's funny these these like little cartoons for all the the sort of serious um, propaganda that Frank Capra did. It was these cartoons that that GIs just went crazy for. You know, they just loved them.
2: And and it is a lot of sexual content. It's amazing
1: to see something like that existing in the nineteen forties. Yeah, there's it's not like, a stag reel. I mean,
0: you know, there's there's like a boner joke in yeah. one of them. And, yeah, it's shocking. And like the, there's a a sort of freeze the balls off a jeep joke. Like it's 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 like it's so easy to watch forties movies and and think that they're the same thing as the 40s world that like because everyone was sort of polite and didn't talk about certain things in 40s movies that must have been the way it was in real life and Mm -hmm. and these cartoons are a great reminder that that no there were like really dirty jokes even back then and you know in
1: screenwriting terms mark now that you've put this gun on the mantle we have to fire it (laughs) Uh, other roads not taken from your books Uh, uh, George Stevens directing an early version of Paths of Glory which didn't happen which uh, Kubrick would wind up making Ca- right, that movie didn't
0: happen. Capra's
1: never seen or ne- never never developed George Washington movie.
0: Oh, yeah, there's was so much of against. that. Right.
1: Uh, um, here's another one. Uh, uh, Whoopi and Richard Pryor in the Star is Born remake that, that, right. that Nichols was swimming around.
0: Yeah, and the, the writer-director George Wolfe was going to uh, write that, and I think actually did, uh, did a couple of drafts of it. Um, you know, it's uh, like... I try not to be too uh, grief stricken about these these movies that I know, didn't but happen. Fun. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, or I mean, the one that that people really can't believe when I say it is uh, Mike directing The Exorcist.
1: Like, oh yeah, tell Gilbert about which, that. Which
0: really, like, <laughs> they, they wanted him, you know, at Warner Brothers to direct The Exorcist. He turned it down, um, and uh, he he said. You, you know it's an it, Mike in horror is an odd thing but but he said, "You know, I have a little girl. I just can't picture doing that to a little girl on the set every day, like going in and having that be my job to like have her vomit um so then the the Exorcist opens and and John Kelly, who's running Warner Brothers, literally takes him on a car tour past the theater where it's playing in Los Angeles, so he can see just how long the lines are." Um, and, uh, Mike calls Elaine May and is, is really like in mourning at this point and saying like, do you know how much money I would have made if, if <laughs> he, I had he made have enough money. the exorcist? <laughs> and, uh, and Elaine May says to him, oh, don't even think about that. Mike, if you had directed it, it wouldn't have made any money.
2: Um, <laughs> <laughs> how- go ahead, Gil. The-
0: there's a story of when
2: Dustin Hoffman auditioned for the it's graduate. In the book. Yeah, and he was at you know he was at Rock Bottom, and and uh, he was when he was getting ready to leave a subway token. Fell out yeah, his well, a
1: lot of Oh, that was the disastrous audition,
0: right? Yeah. Right. He, screen he, test. Subway token falls out of his pocket, and, and one of the crew guys picks it up and gives it to him. The screen test was in L.A. and and Hoffman was heading back to New York, and he the guy picked it up and handed it to him and said, You'll need this. Um, yeah. but but that was an amazing screen test, it turned out, because even though everyone felt that the day had gone badly, including Mike, that was the test that convinced Mike to hire him because he, he said, you know, he, he said it, it, the film went through a miracle in the chemical bath, which is that, you know, he said Hoffman and Elizabeth Taylor were the only two actors he ever worked with who appeared to be doing nothing very much when you shot the film, but when you saw it and played it back, when you developed it, you realized they were doing everything. Um, and, And that, like, how Dustin Hoffman came off on camera as opposed to in the audition room is what convinced... Mike to cast him. And
1: isn't that part, and, part of and- Nichols' genius, though, in the first place? I mean, a, a lesser director would have put Redford in there. It, to, to find Hoffman, to put Hoffman in there, the unlikeliest possible choice, and then to have the, the, the savvy to see it on film, in the screen test. Right. How, how, yeah. many, how many people could have done that?
0: Yeah, well, you know, there's so many stories about Mike's kind of genius with actors. Um, and and the the first part of that genius is... Um, going with your instinct about casting, you know, spotting them, um, realizing that even a very unlikely choice might be the perfect person for this movie.
2: And and by Dustin Hoffman being cast, I remember they were calling that, that they were opening the door for what they were calling
0: the uglies.
2: (laughs) And among the uglies were Al Pacino and Robert De Niro.
0: Right, and Gene Hackman. Um, yes, like guys who didn't look like movie stars, um, and it's amazing when you read uh, the press about Dustin Hoffman in 1967 when the graduate it's came amazing. out. It's it, it's so brutal yeah. and and kind of like that they call him ugly. I mean, they make fun of his nose, they make fun of his skin, they make yeah. fun of his voice. Some of it is is. Like right on the border of anti-semitic it it was i I was really surprised by how free the press felt to just um kind of savage his appearance um but but he did you know he, it changed everything so did arthur miller
1: when when ulu Grossbard reproached him about Hoffman made a comment about his nose yeah it's it's <laughs> said it was forever stuffed. <laughs> or, 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 or something of that nature Here's another fun road not taken that turns up in the Nichols book uh, Developing Melvin and Howard as a project for, yes, Elvis
0: Right, right <laughs> um, and, and, you know, of, of all of the movies that Mike didn't direct um, Melvin and Howard is probably the one that still has his imprint on it anyway that uh, he worked with Bo Goldman, the guy who eventually yeah, won writer. an Oscar for good. for writing uh, Melvin and Howard, and according to Bo Goldman, it was Mike's supervision that really turned that script into um, the the movie that it that it was, including you know the decision to make it more about Melvin than about Howard. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then you know Mike a- at that point uh, had not directed a movie in four or five years, and uh, a lot of people feel that he was really, you know, he he was looking for reasons. He would get interested in something and then look for reasons not to direct it. And I, I wonder if the the idea that Elvis should have starred in it was his way of getting out of it. I you see. Know? Elvis, and then I think um, Jack Nicholson was who he wanted after Elvis died. Um,
2: and, and Jack Nicholson gets to that... Um a movie that either Abbott and Costello or Martin and Lewis should have done. And that was The Fortune.
0: Right. Yeah,
1: Gilbert and I were on the phone talking about The Fortune, which has its moments. But Gilbert said what it was missing was a comedy team.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think especially, um, I think Warren Beatty coming in uh, had a pretty different idea of what the tone of that movie was going to be. He he thought it was going to be a kind of more dapper leading man doing a farce and, and Jack Nicholson thought it was more slapstick. Like, you know, Uh he had his hair frizzed out and Uh it's a big performance and, you know, he's really going for it. And, and then, um, Stucker Channing, probably of the three of them comes the closest to finding the actual tone of what the, the movie was, you know, she, she really, she's quite good in it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, that's a strange, funny movie to watch because it, it doesn't work. Like, you can see why people said it didn't work. But there's there are a lot of little odd things to enjoy along the way.
1: Well, you know what I liken and- it to uh, is another movie where two actors, one of them being the same actor, Beatty, were cast where you might have put a comedy team. You know where I'm going with this. Is, is, is Ishtar. Which is right. which is to me more success. I hope you like it as much as we do. I do, I do. I, I, and, and and I know I know you're, you you became friendly with Elaine. It, it's uh, they're both good at it, and uh, I think it's unfairly maligned. Not perfect in any way.
0: Right, but maybe maybe uh, those ro- I mean none of those road comedies are perfect. No. You know, no, like when you go no back much? to like the the Hope and Crosby ones, they're kind of ramshackle, and it's a different thing every five minutes. And if you don't think this five minutes is funny, something will get you in the next five minutes. And and uh, I like them. I like it too.
2: And and with Nicholson, uh, he had a fairly similar story as uh, Bobby
1: Darin. Well, did was, was did he find out about that family tragedy, that weird situation, while he was in production for The Fortune? Yes, oh, he found out about it from. That'll affect the performance.
0: It, yeah, it was a it was a Time magazine reporter who basically called him up and said, "So, what about this news that your the woman you thought was your uh, sister is actually your mother, and the woman you thought was your mother is actually your grandmother?" I mean, it's just an astonishing thing for for someone to hear from a. A reporter and, and um and you know nicholson I, I can't remember exactly what he he said but but uh, you know he was such a professional he he sort of went to mike and and said i i don't want to talk about what happened but i i may be a little shaky and i may need your help but he was really determined to kind of wow tough his way through the movie
2: and that was like the exact same thing that happened to Bobby Darren. Yeah.
0: yeah. Is that right? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: His, Bobby Darren's yeah. sister was his yeah. mother and his uh, mother was his grandmother.
0: I mean, it's just mind-blowing to me that after making like one year after making Chinatown, where that's basically a plot point. Yes, that's strange. Nich- Nicholson would find himself yes. living this, you know, you 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 can't invent something that's like
1: very, that. That's very very strange. Um, what I want to ask you about, uh, uh, quickly on the subject, I want to jump to, to, to Catch-22 real quick, because we've had so many people on this show now. I was telling Gilbert, Richard Benjamin's been here. Bob Balaban's <laughs> been here. Uh, Austin Pendleton. Buck. Uh, oh, wow. Peter you, so Bonners. Can... Paul Apprentice. Am I leaving anybody out? Arkin was here.
0: Oh, my gosh. So, well, you, you can assemble, like, the definitive. We could. Catch-22 history. We could, but tell, tell
1: us, I, I mean, there's so much there and, and, and you and I were talking over email about uh, uh, his regret, his his uh, uh, his depression, his state when he
0: saw MASH. Right. Well, I, I think this is a great sort of uh, lesson in movie making and, and uh, in movie history, which is that Catch-22 was the first movie where Mike had everything he could possibly want. I mean, a massive budget, a giant cast with everyone from Alan Arkin to Orson Welles. The best cast. And, uh, uh, basically, an airstrip and and a fleet of planes acquired for him, you know, in Mexico. Unbelievable amounts of time to shoot in Mexico, in Italy, uh, on a soundstage in Los Angeles. Um, and, you know, he and Buck Henry made a really uh, serious attempt to, to wrestle this mammoth novel mm-hmm. to the mat and to, to approximate its its tone, which is, you know, so hard to find. And then they finish it, finally, it goes so over budget that they say it's going to, you know, bankrupt Paramount Pictures, and then a few months before it's supposed to open, they see MASH and just instantly feel uh, that they're dead, That, that, you know, Robert Altman has sort of quietly and stealthily made the movie that they were trying to make and didn't even realize they were trying to make until they saw that MASH had made it successfully. So just a brutal thing, I think, to um, to have that happen. And and really a pivotal moment in, in Mike's career because, you know, at, at 39, for the first time, to have to deal with a big public failure, um, probably the rest of your career hinges on how you handle that or don't handle that
1: yeah it's interesting you know uh, and w- with all those people that we we brought up catch 22 with all of them we got different Bogdanovich too who wasn't in the movie but was there with wells uh, I right. assume you talked to some if not all of those people
0: I and, I talked to as many as I could right um, I'll tell that but... wells
1: the story of wells showing up and basically uh, misbehaving
0: Right, I mean, it's you know Wells had had a part that required him to be in, on the Mexico location for about two weeks, and and came in, and I mean Austin Pendleton, who I did talk to, just nice. tells really brilliantly about how you know Wells was awful to Mike, was awful to the cast, was basically like trying to direct the movie as soon as he got there, and and you know was consumed with annoyance that that Mike was directing it and and um <laughs> and what did uh, he say then, to him he, he, he sort he of got a dig in too <laughs> oh yeah well finally when the whole shoot's done and and the, the, they're having dinner together um they're talking about you know success and early success and of course this at this point uh you know wells was more than 25 years past citizen kane and but Mike had come off this, you know, extraordinary one-two punch of Virginia Woolf and The Graduate, mm-hmm. and and Wells says to him before leaving, "Well, the thing about success is, uh, better late than early." Um, so <laughs> How about that, Gil? It's, it's basically saying like, "I was cursed. Now I'm passing the curse on to you. Goodbye." <laughs> what a mensch <laughs> yeah. uh,
1: uh, uh, Elaine May was somebody that you You managed to to, uh, to get an interview with for the Nichols book What was that And, and by the way before I ask about Elaine Did you, did Beatty talk to you the famously elusive Warren Beatty
0: Well I had talked to him a lot about um, I talked to him a lot for Pictures of oh, okay, the Revolution good. Oh okay good it's nice that um, he gave you an interview I- yeah, and then we—he was great, and then we had uh, you know a more informal conversation uh, for for this book.
1: Uh huh. Um, but yeah,
0: Elaine. How pivotal uh,
1: was 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 landing Elaine for assembling the Nichols book? I would imagine. I'm, I mean, Very. you
0: know, I, I said to myself, the the great thing about Mike is that he worked with so many people that if I can't get one person from a movie or a play, I can get somebody else always. But there were a few people where there's no second name on the list and and elaine you know was the the it it would be a very different book if she had not agreed to talk to me Mm -hmm. so i i i feel incredibly lucky that she not only did but that she was so open and forthcoming i mean she really hadn't done a long interview like that in i think literally 50 years and there's real gold in those stories
1: too
2: and i was talking to frank earlier and we were talking about Jane Fonda threw together a party. Oh,
0: yeah, that's a pivotal part of of, yeah. of, Pictures oh, yeah. of the Revolution. <laughs> uh, it was a, uh, a July 4th party in 1965. She was uh, with Roger Vadim at the time, and they were uh, they had like a beachfront house in Malibu. And I, when I was researching Pictures of the Revolution, I kept reading about this party and, like, in three or four different books. And it was, like, one of the happiest research days of my life when I suddenly realized it's the same party. They're all talking about the same party. That's cool. All of my characters who I'm researching happen to go to this one party. And just, like, in terms of writing, you, you just dream about that, like, one big event that brings all your people together. Because it was, it was, like, everyone in old Hollywood, everyone in new Hollywood – Sydney Poitier was there. Mike Nichols and Buck Henry were there because Mike had just come to Hollywood for the first time to start directing.
1: That's, piv- Henry that's pivotal for, for them writing The Graduate together.
0: Right, Nichols right. That's where that's where they meet um, yeah. or, or re meet. Yeah. Um, the the birds were were like the house band. Um, Amazing. You know, uh, studio heads were there. It's just a great. Like someone should do you know a documentary or or a movie about that party.
1: And, and why was it a turning point that party? I mean the way you write about it in the book. The, the uh, Henry Fonda's yelling to the birds, keep the music down. Peter Fonda, right. who we had here by the way, is up on a uh, climbing on the neighbor's roof. Right. It's really okay. so it's it's really a a, a, a microcosm of, of of what's happening.
0: Yeah, in I think like you couldn't invent something that that's more like a literal representation of the old ways giving way to the new ways and of a new generation. I think Jack Nicholson was there with with um, with Peter Fonda. Yeah, Hopper um, Hopper was and, there too. And you know, like the right because this is you know the team that will eventually make Easy Rider, sure. and and the old people, the 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 older generation are staying in the house, and um, the younger ones are kind of wandering down to the beach where the band is playing so uh just an amazing you know to uh, to
1: have been at that party you describe you describe Poitier's sort of a man without a
0: country at that party
1: he doesn't really fit in with either group right he's sort of wandering aimlessly
0: yeah and he's probably one of the only non-white people there I, I I would bet on that and and you know The idea of Jane Fonda presiding over it is so perfect because she is this literal daughter of old Hollywood who also comes to represent, you know, new Hollywood uh, as much as anyone as much as anyone ever did. So it's I, I wish I knew more about that party. I think Jane Fonda writes about it a little bit in her. Her own autobiography. So th- there's a lot of great material there.
1: And on, on the subject of Poitiers, as we as we wind down, Mark, and you've been so uh, you've been so forthcoming, and the the, st- the stories are wonderful. And obviously, we say this a lot, but we could talk to you about this stuff for hours, <laughs> I- if yeah. not days. It's impossible to get your arms around these wonderful uh, detailed books. But um, Poitiers and shooting the heat of the night did not want to go down. Jewison wanted to shoot on location. Thought it was important to get off the lot and P- right. Poitiers certainly had his reasons for not going as you alluded to earlier
0: yeah they wanted to shoot in the south and and Poitier really uh was afraid of it and and not without reason as it turned out because you know they 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 ended up doing a week um south of the mason dixon line to to do some location stuff and i think i think most of the movie was shot in ohio but but for this they went south and and they had uh, a night uh, when when um you know Poitier and Steiger were staying in adjoining rooms in a local motel, um, nothing very glamorous at all. And they had a night when a bunch of like drunken rednecks you know pulled into the the parking lot uh, in pickup trucks looking for trouble and and Poitier basically said, you know, the first guy who comes through that door, I'm gonna start shooting uh, so there there was wow. um there was real reason to be afraid. It was not just um you know, an actor being paranoid or insecure. So they wind up going to Illinois. Fit. But then, I, but then what? One they, week in Tennessee? Yes, I think that's right. Illinois, sorry, not Ohio. But yeah. Um, yeah, I think they did one week in Tennessee and and you can see it uh, like they made the most of it in the movie. It's, it's you know, I, I believe it's the scene where uh, one of the scenes is when um, uh, Tibbs uh, and um, Gillespie are driving uh, through uh, cotton fields um, to question someone,
2: uh, and and tell us about the relationship of Rod Steiger and Sidney Poitier.
0: It was really good. They were really close. I mean, Steiger's uh, Steiger's politics were were very progressive, um, and and he felt like uh, he felt like he and Poitier should be um, brothers in arms. But also, I think. Um, Poitier was really dazzled by Steiger as an actor. You know, he, he saw how 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 deeply into character Steiger was getting, and and I, I think Potier has has sort of said that Steiger helped him raise his game. That he thought, you know, I, I this is going to be a real performance, and I need to, uh, you know, I need to bring my A-game A game against it.
1: Uh, I have to ask you as we as we wind down. Uh, Mark, what did you you knew Mike Nichols a little bit as you said, maybe better than a little bit. You knew him for 12, 14 years. So you 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 undertake a project like this. What did you learn that you didn't know about the man? what was what was the most surprising thing?
0: Oh wow. well, well, I mean, first of all, I should just say that w- what I didn't know is a much 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 longer list than what I did know. Uh-huh. I mean I, I thought I knew a lot. The process of re- researching this was was really an education in how much I didn't know. I think um, I think the two things I learned that surprised me, uh, or that really stuck with me, were one I I didn't realize how much uh, of a role depression and a struggle with depression had played in his life. Mm-hmm. That that you know Mike was such an engaging, genial, so perfectly presented person, um, his outer self that that. It was it was news to me how much he had struggled with depression for for decades. Um, and the other thing was, uh, I, and I feel like I've I've this actually helps me in my own life. Um, the, the the idea that um, if you're a creative person, you constantly have to find ways to renew yourself and ways to challenge yourself. Wow. And, and find this balance between things that you're doing because you just really want to do them and and you know they will give you pleasure and you know they can you can do them well and, on the other hand, things that you're doing because you've never done them before and they'll be a challenge and they'll force you into a new place. I think Mike was really extraordinary about... Um, I don't even want to say managing his career, but kind of managing his, his interior creative life that way. He, he At every point in his life until the very end, he thought, what should I be doing right now? And he didn't always pick right, and he didn't always pick for the same reason, but he never stopped thinking about it. And that, was, that is a huge lesson to me. That's
1: valuable to any, to any creative person.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and
1: you make the point, uh, as you've had both in the book and in interviews, that uh, we may never see the likes of a Mike Nichols again. Someone someone that versatile, someone that succeeding in that many areas.
0: I think it's an absolutely unique career to have this kind of game-changing comedy partnership and uh, have that be in your 20s, essentially, and just turns out to be the warm-up act to this... 50-year career as a director simultaneously in in two different mediums. And, um, and in
1: television, too.
0: Right, C- right.
1: Certainly with, with Tony's piece with the Angels in America.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and also to, b- besides all of that, to just be someone who not only does that, but is fascinated by the world of fashion, the world of publishing, the world of politics, yes. the world of magazines, um, uh, the world of food, uh, which was a big thing for Mike. I Raising mean, horses. Raising horses, right, absolutely, right. an obsession. Right. Um, you know, the the he's a great example of how uh, rich your life can be if you're not just interesting, but if you're interested in like everything.
1: Uh, it's a fascinating read, but I I, I I think you hit on something. It's also an inspiring thing for any creative person to read. To, to, I hope so. To, to I think about
0: it. it as kind of like uh, you know a how-to manual uh, to sort of uh, survive a, a complicated. Complicated creative life. This is the last go ahead, and, Gil.
1: And
2: if after I watched uh, Five Came Back, it it just took me into uh Five Came Back the reference films,
0: I think it was called. Oh, the the list of like the propaganda movies yeah. and documentaries and stuff, yeah.
2: Yeah, and, and shortage of the Holocaust uh, Right. Which was I uh, so that one's nightmarish. I mean it's
0: yeah, even if you think you're, you've seen it and you're going to be uh, insulated from having a really strong emotional reaction to it, it, it it goes right to the deepest place in you. At least it does for me.
2: Yeah, I had a very hard time watching that one.
1: We we want to recommend these though to to our listeners. Uh, uh, you know, I consider these films. You look at the, looking at these films. Uh, uh, you know, Carnal Knowledge and, and and The Graduate and In the Heat of the Night and all these films that, and uh, Pawnbroker all that we're talking about. I consider these, you know, gifts that these artists left behind. And I have to say the same for your three books. Uh, they are gifts to, to, oh. to, to creative people, but to people interested in this world, interested in this history. You really, you, you bring the period to life. All of it.
0: All, those, all those
1: periods. The 40s as well as the 60s as well as the 70s.
0: Uh, I really appreciate that. It's, I mean, I, 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 that's the whole job—to try to make you feel like you're in that moment. So, so I'm really glad you felt that.
1: And way. you must be tired, Mark.
0: <laughs> I'm always <laughs> that's I'm a always lot tired. of research.
1: <laughs> how much? How many years of research goes into each book? If, if you don't mind my asking.
0: Um, they usually take me. I'm a pretty fast writer and a slower researcher. So it's it's usually about like four three or four years of research and then a little less than a year of writing
1: well we're, we we uh, gilbert I, as soon as i saw yeah. five came back i said this is catnip for gilbert
2: uh, and oh, he yeah. went
1: crazy yeah he ate it well, up thanks. Yeah. Yeah, why, you, you binge watch all four of them in a night and then watched all the propaganda films i
2: i watched <laughs> yeah i was watching it like crazy yeah
1: It was well. uh, Thank you, thank you. It's addictive. And
2: then there was one story that came out in um, the reference films that at this uh, uh, prison that they were holding Nazis, uh, they got a report that the last inmate of a certain concentration camp had died, and the Nazis had a celebration.
0: Wow. I mean. You know It's Well I'm glad you watched it all the way through Because if you hadn't That Netflix algorithm Might mean that you Would get an email saying like Are you still enjoying this Holocaust film Yes that's probably You know
1: You know, I, I, I got a letter when I was much younger from Capra that I'll, I'll send you, Mark. Uh, oh, in, I'd love to see it. In 1985, he wrote me a letter because uh, I had written to him. And, 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 and uh, one of the things that Five Came Back did was, in certain ways, and he's been a hero of mine, disillusioned me. <laughs> Joe McBride's book has, has a similar effect, The Catastrophe yeah, of yeah. Success. But, but I learned certain things about Capra. Uh, 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 such a complicated man. Uh, uh, such a complex yes. guy.
0: I mean, all of those guys. I mean, Capra and Houston and Ford were all like, "You've got to take the good with the bad." You but do. there's a lot of good.
1: You do. You do. So to to our listeners, uh, get these books. Five came back is fascinating. So is the Netflix documentary docu series, I guess we call it, that that you can stream, which which Gilbert ate up, uh, ate with a spoon. The Mike Mike Nichols a Life, which is uh, unbelievably rewarding. And, uh, and Pictures at a Revolution, which is uh, uh, such a, a, a wonderful history of Hollywood. Just want to thank a couple of people, too Juliana and Catherine at Penguin and Random House, and uh, our friend Adam Shartoff, and Michael, of course, Michael Weber. And I, I, I've got, uh, and congratulations to Tony, to your husband, who's uh, writing, uh, who just wrote the new West Side story.
0: Yeah, and, thanks. We're excited about
1: Spielberg. that. Right. And Spielberg. Right. And wrote the Munich
0: movie and Lincoln Gilbert for Spielberg.
1: Jeez. Yeah, 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 and and, and they're oh, they're and, shooting
0: another movie that they wrote together right now. Wonderful,
1: and and
2: before we forget, uh, Sidney Poitier was close friends with a former podcast guest, strangest cup, Fr- strangest friendship. Uh, uh, Sidney Poitier was friends with Marty Allen. Did
1: you know Marty really? Allen from, from Allen and Ross? Ross? Wow. Yes, yes.
2: <laughs> <Hello there. laughs> Oh my God! I, I think I think Sydney Poitier may have been a best man at at Marty Allen's wedding.
0: I, well, I've got my next book. <laughs> I got
1: about 20, oh, and, 20 cards here, Mark. The, I could go on.
2: The thing you said about Netflix it reminded me when I saw when I went to see Schindler's List. I I'm walking into the theater and the guy who works there recognized me and says, Oh, I'm a big fan. It's such a treat meeting you. And then I'm, as I'm going into the theater to see Schindler's list, he says, enjoy it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> Never told that one before. <laughs> wow. Wow, we'll go out on a we'll go out on a high note. One last question from a fan. We'll give it to Matt Bradley to Shergi or to Shergi. Out of all of Rex Harrison's galling adventures and escapades and behavior on the set of Doctor Doolittle, <laughs> did any not make marks cut?
0: Oh, you know, I wish I could say that I'm such a tasteful person that I left something out for discretion's sake, but no, you you, what I found out about you got. <laughs> I think my
1: favorite in addition to the handstands and the penis song was that he threw a tantrum because when he heard talk to the animals because rhinoceros did not rhyme with of corus. <laughs> it doesn't fucking rhyme. You know. Yes. Fair enough. <laughs> Thank you Mark. This was a treat for us.
0: Yeah, for me too. Thank you so much.
1: And uh, everybody, get get their hands on these books. And Gilbert Gilbert will do a sign off. And congratulations, hey. Mike Weber. Yeah. Or as Gilbert calls him, what do you call him, Mickey Wiggly?
2: Mickey Wiggly. <laughs> 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 okay, this has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with my co host Frank Santo Padre. And a guy who says that Rex Harrison was a big scumbag. <laughs> I
1: think you said that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Mark Harris.
1: <laughs> Could you add that? Could you? I know the book came out in 2004. Can you add Gilbert's blurb? <laughs> yes. I, I'm going to do, do
0: it as an afterword. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Mark Harris. Thank this you. Was that a was a great fun. ride. It was really fun. It's incredible. It's impossible. But it's true.
2: A man can talk to the
1: animals. It's a miracle. In a year from now, I guarantee. I'll be the marvel of the mammals. playing chess with camels. No more just a boring old MD. I'll study every living creature's
2: language. So I can speak to all of them on sight. If friends say, can he talk in crab or pelican?" You'll say like Helica, Ah! and you'll be right. And if you just stop to think a bit, there's no doubt of it, I shall win a place in history. I can walk with the animals, talk with the animals, grunt and squeak and squawk with the animals. And they can squeak and squawk and speak. Talk to me!